0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Tuesday, August the 30th on the West Coast of the United States. It's late afternoon. It's already tomorrow in some parts of the world, including japan um as my guest today half joked uh before we went live he is already in the future um we've done some stuff on the future in terms of this show in japan we did a conversation a year or two ago with the uh culture writer matt alt about how japan has conquered the world in cultural terms at least with Uh, His book, Pure Invention, How Japan's Pop Culture Quite Literally Conquered the World. We have another American exile in Japan on the show today, W. David Marks. His book, Amatora, was about how Japan saved American style. And David is back with a new book, uh, a book specifically about Status and culture called how our desires for social rank create taste, identity, art, fashion, and constant change. David is joining us from Kyoto in Japan. David, welcome.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: How does it feel to be in the future, David? Um,
1: pretty much the same. I think you'll you'll find it familiar.
0: Good. Well, um, your your new book, uh, Status and Culture. Uh, How our desire for social rank, blah, 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 creates taste, identity, art, fashion, and cost change. In other words, everything you've thrown the the (laughs) kitchen sink, David, or your editors have thrown the kitchen sink into this subtitle. How much of this theory of status and culture was derived from uh, your life in Japan? When did you arrive in Japan?
1: I moved to Japan more or less full time in 2003. So it's almost been 20 years Um, How much this book comes from my time in Japan, it comes from two things. I went to graduate school in Japan and studied uh, consumer behavior and uh, more or less the sociology of culture. And a lot of these ideas come from what I learned there and the frustration that all of these things were taught in a silo and not quite put together. Uh, At the same time, I think living in Japan and thinking about Japan and seeing a very vibrant pop culture and consumer culture that in some ways was becoming more fashionable than the United States or, or Europe, um, but lacked what I think we would call the real cult of individuality, where people weren't necessarily expected to be different, and yet was resulting in this um, real fashion uh, forward culture. I think I got very interested in, in you know the intellectual differences between uh, what drives people in Japan and what drives them in the US and why they were uh, creating different outputs. And I think from there, I started to have a new perspective on Western culture uh, as much as uh, Japanese culture. So it's you know taking myself outside of the U.S. I think it really did help me uh, analyze the United States and Western culture more.
0: Do you think there's a connection between the lack of innovation in Japan over the last thirty or forty years, its resistance to innovation? We did a show last week on Carlos Ghosn and the way in which he seems to have been eaten by. Japanese culture or media for in part at least being an innovator, although obviously his story is a little bit more complicated that. And this Japanese addiction to fashion, uh, do the two sort of go in a weird way hand in hand? In other words, if a culture is obsessed with fashion as as, the, as Japan seems to be, does it create a culture of conformity? So
1: let's unpack that by First, thinking about what fashion is, because fashion is um, a cycle of people going through what I would call conventions. So conventions are uh, mutually understood ways of doing things that are ultimately arbitrary. So you know, we can wear skinny jeans, we can wear wide leg jeans; it really doesn't matter. Uh, but for some reason, during the peak of these fashion cycles, you can only wear one, and you can't wear the other. And so these movements mean that there has to be some sort of conformity, but they start from uh, more or less elites of different of different uh, kinds, choosing what is different in order to mark their difference. And, and then that kind of cycles through society. So fashion is something that requires both kind of individuality and the desire for difference to start, but then at the same time needs conformity to kind of flow through. So when you think about Japan, I think Japan is uh, a very convention bound society, um, that can be uh, quite conservative most of the time because the expectation to conform to convention, to conform to social norms is much stronger than other places. And uh, the, how would you say this? The punishment for breaking these norms is quite high. Whereas in the United States, that's not necessarily true, um, but you can create a system in which as long as there's an elite class who is introducing these innovations that you get these things sweeping through society. So fashion works well in Japan because fashion magazines will say, here's what's going on overseas. Uh, here's what's going on in New York introduce it to everybody and then you instantly get everybody copying it. Uh, but if you don't have necessarily people at the top introducing those new ideas things get stuck. And I think with Japanese business, if you look after World War II where it was real chaos, you have all these new companies popping up, breaking the rules, breaking conventions because you know it's complete uh, social chaos. but once the system gets formed it becomes really difficult uh, to to break that conventional mold and so it 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 can happen. It's just uh, currently in the last, 20 or 30 years, it has not been a time of uh, huge conventional breaks. But at the same time, you know, there's lots of businesses that have popped up in Japan that are quite successful for, for breaking more or less cartel behavior. And if you look at Uniqlo, the fashion company, just because I, I know it really relatively well, they've become a global behemoth of fashion because they just started charging what were more or less American prices for Japanese clothing in Japan because all the other Japanese brands decided to charge way more.
0: David, you obviously study fashion, and my sense from your book and from the argument you're making is everything you see is viewed through the prism of fashion. But I wonder whether fashion is itself going, if you like, excusing the pun, out of fashion. Um, We did a show... Ten years ago, with the American writer, Kurt Anderson, very influential writer, Mm -hmm. he had a a wonderful piece out in Vanity Fair from January Mm -hmm. 2012. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. I didn't. Yeah, I talk about Uh, it. In in which he basically says, look, nothing much has changed over the last 30 years, except for technology. We'll talk about technology and the Internet. I know you think that's quite influential. But the kids these days look the same as their parents. They dress in the same way. Um, they listen to the same, generally they listen to the same music. What would you make of, of Anderson's argument? Is there some truth in this, that fashion itself has gone out of fashion?
1: And let me start with, when you look at things through a fashion lens, I think we are so dismissive of fashion as a phenomenon because it's superficial, because it doesn't matter because haircuts don't necessarily matter to the state of the world and, uh, how things are ordered but at the same time you know it is a incredibly human phenomenon that you've seen through the centuries and you can't escape it and i think we we lose a lot of understanding human behavior
0: by just ignoring fashion so now to the question well, of, but, but the point is he's yeah. not ignoring fashion he's saying if he's doing oh, the reverse yes, he's he, saying that everyone still dresses and looks the same so so anderson's argument i think was being made by a lot of
1: people at the time and and the the example you know i would give you is Back to the Future, the film, If you, it's from 1985. The entire joke of the film is that he goes back to 1955 and everything is completely different. The clothes are completely different. The music is completely different. Uh, the social order is completely different. And then if you go back 30 years from now, you just do not see those differences in film and music and all these things. Music still has so many of the characteristics of music from the 90s. Uh, our fashion, if you watch Friends, doesn't look that different. So Anderson's point about cultural stasis, absolutely correct. Um, And a lot of people have noticed the same thing. And I think in the fashion industry, there is this issue of, hey, we're not getting these big mega trends anymore. So that is accurate. I don't, by his argument though of why i think he he couldn't quite figure out why and it took me the last 10 years of trying to figure out why a little bit more and i think it does come down to what i call status value which is that things are valued in in a fashion cycle because they're associated with elites and elites adopt, adopt things new things to start the fashion cycle for quite a while so that they become desirable to, by uh, by everyone else because they're associated with that elite group. And you, what you need is enough time to say skinny, let's say skinny jeans are in with a certain crowd and they've been in for a couple of years and then it starts trickling down. And w- the problem with the internet and speeds, uh, the speed of information on the internet is that it doesn't allow elites to kind of Uh, live authentically in these new styles for long enough for those to take value and for other people to want to adopt them. So the fashion cycles in some ways are so fast that you don't get anything sticking and nothing, everything feels ephemeral and everything feels uh, valueless and people aren't willing to put things into their identity that they believe will be valueless. So in some ways, the internet's uh, complete unbelievable speed of information and the distribution of all goods, I mean, almost everything's available to us, have made it where adopting a new trend is is a bit risky, it looks inauthentic, and so people have become much more conservative.
0: I mean, this isn't new to the internet. Um, the sociologist Weber, Max Weber, who you talk about in your book, invented the term disenchantment. This existed at the beginning of the 20th century, way before anyone even imagined the internet. Are you, and I I obviously have to joke about this, given your name, David, but are you a Marxist when it comes to power? (laughs) Because when I listen to you, and when I read you, it it sounds as if there's a kind of weird Marxism there. I mean, obviously, you're (laughs) called uh, W. David Marx. So you're a Marxist, whether or not you're a follower of Karl Marx. But do you have a, a, a similar notion? You keep on talking about elites. Are you talking about economic yep. elites, cultural elites? What kind of elites are you talking about? And what kind of theory do you have of history? Is it one of social class, for example, as opposed to status? So I am not a Marxian in the sense of
1: I believe that the oppression of the proletariat will lead to revolution um, and you know, so much of Marxist theories got baked into social analysis. So let me give you a sense of what, where this book is coming from, because I, you know, I'm not trying to be specifically and and, uh, explicitly political in the book, but I'm trying to give you a framework for understanding society that I can't, I think can be applied to politics. So what I mean by status uh, is that you're, you have a position in a hierarchy and you have this on a local level, you have this on a global level. um, And Every society decides this hierarchy based off what is important to that society, uh, and based off the economic structure of that society. So, if you're in a feudal society, the there is an elite class that is around royalty, that is their arist- uh, aristocracy, uh, sorry, aristocracy, and. Uh, if you're the bourgeoisie, you're kind of out of luck in a feudal system because you're just, you know, uh, always going to be lower in status than the aristocracy. If you move to a capitalist system, the status criteria change, in which you suddenly now uh, money can buy you into the elite class in a way it couldn't in a feudal system. It could, you know, in a in a you had to pay the king to get the titles, but you know, in an economic system, you can make your own st- status based off how much money and achievement you have. So. Um, What I'm trying to do is kind of not not tether myself to Marx and say social class is the whole way you should understand uh, society, but I do think you know how elites uh, elites are formed in society has a huge uh, so would it be fair to say I'm just
0: trying to sort of position you sociologically, David? Are you a a follower, for example, of Thorstein Veblen who 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 came up with a lot of the terms? His famous book, The Theory of the Leisure Class. He wrote about conspicuous consumption and conspicuous leisure. Do you have a a, a Veblen view of, of the world? Definitely. And I think I think
1: Veblen is more sophisticated than uh, we give him credit for, in that he didn't just see things as... Well, I agree. I, I, I think most of us yeah. give
0: him some credit. I mean, he's an important figure in the history of, of, of sociology. So are you saying yep. then, rather than a Marxist, if you're a follower of Veblen, Hierarchies are determined through our consumption. Is that how we know whether we are above or below our neighbor, our friends, our relatives? And and, and What we wear, it's what we listen to, it's what we eat.
1: That is absolutely true. And that whole stream of thinking that you could uh, most definitely say kicks off the ideas in my book starts from Veblen, absolutely. And then I think people like Pierre Bourdieu, uh expand those ideas to make them more sophisticated and can, can i can
0: i jump concept. in again because sure. there's something very depressing about this view of the world are, are you mm-hmm. suggesting that everything we do from our sexual behavior to what we wear to what we listen to to what we eat it's all determined by our desire for social rank is that all that that, that explains all of human behavior no, I would not go that far. I mean, obviously... Well, your subtitle suggests that. Taste, identity, art, fashion, and constant change. Those specific things. So let me let me give you an example,
1: which is uh, my grandmother still called the refrigerator an icebox. And, and iceboxes were a thing. You can see people listening to MP3s and Spotify and going back to uh, record players. No one's ever going to go back to iceboxes refrigerators are a perfect technological replacement they're much better they're much more efficient so obviously technology and efficiencies are things that move us forward all i'm saying is that there is a layer across all of our behavior that is symbolic that is reflective of status but how do we determine between
0: the symbolic and and shall we say the real earlier today i did a show Again, in Asia, with a woman called Mansi Choksi. She has a new book out, The Newlyweds. And it's about outsiders in India, about a lesbian couple, a Hindu woman and a Muslim man who tried to get married, uh, inter couples. They're all standing outside the mainstream. Um, you know, in, in the West, conservatives might call them woke. Uh, but for them, these choices are enormously meaningful and carry punishment. I mean, that's got nothing to do with social rank, does it? Choice of your sexuality, the willing, your willingness to risk your life for stuff.
1: But the fact that you have to risk your life for stuff is determined by the social norms, which are all determined by conventional behavior. So, you know, look, what, what I'm trying to do with this book is not say, here's what Marx says, here's what Weber says, which is what frustrated me about all these things, but to say, there's a layer behind all of this that we've got to get to first, which is to say, human beings form these conventions, conventions take on differential values based off their position in the hierarchy, and that determines what we find to be good, right, and beautiful. Uh, and these things change over time as the social structure changes, and uh, as They flow through society. So when it comes to what is real and what is symbolic, it's very difficult because everything we see, everything we choose is filtered through the symbolic values that we get for these things from other people. We cannot determine these things ourselves. Nothing is cool because we determine it's cool. It's cool because everyone else does. And so that is just the part of human nature and it's ridiculous to deny it in a sense.
0: I don't know if it's ridiculous to deny it. I mean, we did a a show with Blake Smith on wokeness and the meritocracy in the Ivy League, in which he says that this has become the fashion at universities like the University of Chicago or Harvard. Um, That's the conservative take on wokeness. Uh, It suggests that people don't really believe in these things. They behave like sheep. But that seems to be your understanding of the human nature of behavior. I think behave like sheep is... You know,
1: I don't, I don't, I don't think that is correct either. Because I really don't like the idea that status—that we are evolutionarily uh, determined to desire status. It could be true. It—it it doesn't matter because if you're placed into a social hierarchy, you want to move up the hierarchy because there's more benefits. It's a rational thing. That's all fine. Um, to act like sheep means that we don't have choices. We don't make these choices. That in in what we're doing at all times is calculating. The social risk and the social rewards of these choices, but it's are we? I mean, us. in terms
0: of what we wear, you, you keep on talking about skinny jeans. So, if we decide whether or not to put on skinny jeans, are we consciously thinking about social hierarchy in that sense, or is it just young girls who think about these sorts of things, or young boys?
1: I don't think that everyone is conscious of these things. That's they. They in fact. The other values, and you know, the complaint against Veblen was the, the same complaint you're making, which is you just see everything as social hierarchy. That people can't make choices on their own; they can't like anything on their own. And uh, you know, the, my point is not necessarily that you can't enjoy a, a car because it's more fuel efficient. You can most definitely do that. It's just that you can't separate the symbolic meaning of caring about a car with fuel efficiency. Because if you like a car with fuel efficiency, you will have some virtues uh, with that. You can tell your friends you have a very fuel efficient car. You can't separate the social meaning and values of these things away from your decision making. You're just not conscious of that. We do make choices. Some of it's conscious, some of it's unconscious. So I don't think we're necessarily sheep, Uh, but uh, it's just too complicated to either say it's 100% that or or 0% that. And I think with this book, it's just simply to put back on the table, status is not well understood, cultural practices are not particularly well understood. If you wanna even define culture, it's such a vague word, it's difficult. Just to give people the toolkit to say, these are how these things are operating. And then to understand how trends work better, how even technologies flow through society because technology, yes, has a utility that helps it move through. But the fact that elites often are the first adopters also makes it move through much faster than if it were simply just utility.
0: You brought up uh, vehicles. We did a show earlier today on uh, Elon Musk and Tesla. Um, And actually, maybe you're right, Tim Higgins uh, was my guest. He's a Wall Street Journal uh, writer. Um, Books just come out in paperback. And he talks about the way in which the elite in San Francisco who bought the first Tesla cars, which were very expensive, $90,000, $100,000, have, have, I guess, legitimized or created a fashion for these cars. Is that your argument? That elites are always defining what non-elites wear and drive and eat? Yes, and it's not
1: necessarily that in the United States in particular that one set of elites determines everything for everybody because we all are in these different status groups but if you are in a coastal elite status group uh, the elites did start buying teslas the electric car was seen as something good to buy but nobody was necessarily aspiring to and tesla made it incredibly aspirational to a point where then it became the it car to have as an elite, and it's kind of gone and trickled down from there. So that pattern is is extremely common. At the same time, if you go to the heartland of America, you know a Ford one hundred and fifty F one hundred and fifty giant truck may be the aspirational car. Um, so you know I think it, these these things are often simplified to say this theory doesn't make sense because people uh, in who are lower middle class may not want to. Uh, uh, imitate people who are san francisco elites but it, it's just because they're in different status groups but most certainly for the coastal elites the electric cars are suddenly much more aspirational than they were and i think tesla gave form to that
0: are we all aspirational david um uh, uh the business the influence of business seems to be ubiquitous uh, although there's a Vogue business piece, I found that the era of celebrity influencers is over, which is probably written by a celebrity influencer. Meanwhile, another study shows that one in four Gen Zers plan to become social media influencers. How does social media influencer tie into your theories of status and culture? I'm assuming that they conf- they, they confirm the arguments in your book. I think they
1: most definitely show how the internet has changed the entire uh, way we get status, signal status, use that status. And so if you think about pre-social media, in order to get status from other people, based on your behavior, you had to appear in real life in front of those people. Or let's say you were high society, you had your photo taken, it was in a newspaper. Now with these apps, we can signal our status 24 hours a day, seven days a week, we can go to sleep and have our videos signal status for us these apps become incredible you mean like on instagram or tiktok on or instagram you know. on tiktok and on instagram in particular and so then you had a lot of people rise up striving towards high status in a really uh clear way using these platforms and becoming influential with certain groups um and you know, we, people have been bemoaning fame for fame's sake for, you know, decades now, but really, uh, you know, crystallizing that. And then obviously because they're influential and that's how you sell products is, you know, again, going top down, then these people who are kind of bottom up in a sense of self-made strivers on these platforms are being then used by the brands uh, Mm -hmm. to sell products. But if that's not effective enough anymore, that's, you know, that's quite interesting, but at the same time, you know, because they are famous, not necessarily from achievement, they're not, they didn't achieve something on some other platform and are simply using the other platform for promotion. They actually kind of hacked the system to become famous by learning how to be famous on the system itself. Then whether they deserve status or not is a big question for us in society. And we debate and a lot of people think. But David, isn't this like a, a
0: sort of a circular, uh, a a, a circular execution where everyone's shooting everybody else. And meanwhile, the people who own Instagram or YouTube are cleaning up and making huge amounts of money. None of this really matters. No one really cares. Uh, And even the idea of an influencer is a a rather childish notion, isn't it? That people quickly grow out of.
1: Um, Whether this has long-term... Staying power as part of our culture, I, you know, it could certainly be a fad. Fads, I mean, the other
0: point of really this book is. To say- really powerful people fads. just don't care. I mean, Elon Musk doesn't care what, what style clothes you wear. In fact, the really powerful people always wear the same things like Steve yep. Jobs or Mark Zuckerberg.
1: Yes. No, I mean, look, the, the other part of this is you have the Met Gala or something and you have TikTok stars going to that now, but are they treated as equals when they get there to celebrities of? Hollywood or, you know, famous business people, probably not. And so, you know, the thing you're pointing out is, is our, is being an influencer path towards permanent elite status and true elite status. And I think. Well, give me an example of an elite
0: who you really think captures what it means to be an elite. Give me someone who we all have heard of. Well, at the moment,
1: I would say an Elon Musk, or Jeff Bezos definitely is that. I would also say that... Um,
0: and and are they elites, and i jumping in here, is their elite status mean that going to Mars now has become fashionable because they want to?
1: Well, obviously, you can't go to Mars. So that's, and but that's not my replicable. Point. But they haven't gone to Mars either. So, I mean, just announcing the intention to do it is not quite interesting enough. Um, but the things they do certainly become... Uh, noticeable, I think what's difficult about them is that they are not, you know, robber barons living, you know, super duper gilded. Because a lot of them have upper middle class backgrounds, so they still have these values of, you know, faux frugality. Often, uh, that kind of temper things a bit compared to, let's say, the 19th century. But uh, you know, I mean, elites can also be obviously movie stars and celebrities. I mean, the, the, that there's no question what whatsoever that a celebrity is a serious elite who kicks off trends and makes people value things in new ways when they point to them. Um, And when we talk about micro celebrities or whatever, it just means that there's these celebrities who have smaller groups in which this, this model works. Um, I mean, I guess the the main point I would get to with this is it's, talking about elites in some sort of, you know, conspiracy way is not particularly useful. And all I mean is there are status groups in the status groups, there are hierarchies, there are people at the top who are elites, and those elites determine in that group what is appropriate behavior or not. And if you look at that model, you will find it everywhere. And it's not, that's not a mind blowing insight, but it's a really important one to understanding how culture
0: flows. And how does it break down, say, between men and women or between races, this, which is an issue that preoccupies many of the guests on my show?
1: I, you know, race, gender, all these things are status problems. And in the what book, mean, I talk status about
0: problems. I don't understand. So
1: Yeah. So let me explain. So the, in the book, I talk about two forms of status. There's what uh, this is from a sociologist, or sorry, anthropologist named Ralph Lind, 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 Linton, um, and there's the idea of ascribe status, which is if you, again, are in a feudal society, it is ascribed to what your status position is on, your, on how you were born and your immutable characteristics. If you're born a farmer, you die a farmer, that's the way it works. Then there's achieved status, which is the status you get from the things you actually do. And when you look at racism and sexism, what we're describing, are ascribed status structures that still exist in a world that we believe should be 100% achieved status. So if you assign lower status, what what sociologist Cecilia Ridgeway calls being status disadvantaged to groups that are uh, minorities or or for whatever reason seen as breaking social norms uh, based on their immutable characteristics, let's say sexual orientation, and they're given less status, that means that they have to work extra hard to even have their achieved status recognized as achieved status, and so uh, when it comes to people's uh, position in society, if these ascribed status structures still exist, and we're arguing, you know, in some ways how much they exist and how much they influence people, then you can change you have the
0: color to- of your skin. You can change your sexuality. You can change your dress. You can change what you eat. I guess, right. probably, I mean, how does your theory make sense of, say, and I'm not. I'm careful here to use this word, the new fashion for at least transgender issues?
1: What which... I would say is that transgender in the past has been, in these ascribed ascribe status structures, devalued. They are a status disadvantaged community, and they are fighting for... Dignity, And dignity is the right to be seen as normal status for being transgender. And so all of identity politics is the battle to have your immutable characteristic, the thing that you consider immutable characteristic, to be considered to be a candidate to just simply have normal status, like uh, majority populations.
0: David, we had... um... Recently, Thomas Frank, actually, a couple of years ago, was on the show. Mm -hmm. He had a really good book from 1997 out called The Conquest of Cool, which talked about the way in which capitalism has essentially captured the idea of cool and successfully sold it. How does your theory make sense of that? I assume it's in contradiction to your argument.
1: Not at all. I mean, I think Frank's book... Was is it's great? I think everyone should read it if you're interested in this. And the number one takeaway I had from it that I reference in the book is that he talks about the development of hippie culture and especially in its manifest manifestation in uh, advertising. So if you looked at advertising in the '60s, it starts getting very psychedelic, very colorful, very hippie. And his point was, it is not the companies responding to the growth of youth culture and adapting. It was that the art directors were all kind of proto hippies who came up before those things were mainstream and actually made them mainstream. And so he's talking about a top-down cultural flow for all that as well. Um, and so I, that book, I, I don't feel at all is in contradiction to the, the same, uh,
0: are, are principles we to 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 this does your, does your theory leave any agency, David?
1: It most definitely leaves, leaves agency for two things. Number one, on the status side, we do determine in our own groups what, what should get status and what shouldn't. And we have the power to instill, instill social norms that make some criteria for status more important than others. Uh, we can, you know, in our groups, reward arrogance and braggery uh you know say wow that person has so much money and they show it off and that's incredible or we can say that's uh very uncool to show off the money we have that power on the culture side too we have the culture to value so we invent
0: morality culture. in other words to determine whether or not it's good to be rich or, yeah i mean or, like mo- most to, certainly you know in, ve- can- in, in veblen-esque terms to spend conspicuously
1: conspicuous consumption in some eras is seen as uh wonderful and there's nothing wrong with it. And in different eras is seen as incredibly crass. And so we do have that power to shape what a culture looks like based off those values. So we do have agency and the whole political struggle is a struggle over who gets status and how uh, uh, resources are distributed based on the status hierarchies. So that's that. On the culture side, you know, we have this thing called taste. We determine what is good or bad, what should be valued, how uh, how we should value certain art over others. And that has also changed over time. And the people who are influential can make a choice about whether they're going to spend all their attention on things that are popular and making sure that we talk more about things that are popular or that they find unpopular but incredibly innovative things and talk about those things instead. So we have a lot of agency Um, There are most definitely economic structures and circumstances that put some things more, uh, make things more salient than others. But I think we have agency as humans to change these. And the story of human history is us changing our culture and changing our status hierarchies based off the values that we think
0: are right. But someone might read your book and say, well, any any kind of taste reflects uh, a desire for social rank. So we can't take any social critic. Any analysis of art, of literature, of film, of anything, everything reflects social rank. And it's a kind of weird determinism, isn't it?
1: So I talk in the book that distaste has become distasteful uh, in the last 20 years. And by that, I mean, it seems as, seem as kind of uncouth to say, well, this culture is you know better than this culture.
0: Uh, but it's not just cu- comparing cultures, but it's comparing, say, works of art. Comparing a yeah, I mean I that's what work, I mean. So a, let's say you have, a Van Gogh or a Vermeer with something we've never seen or heard of. How we determine whether something's good or not?
1: Right. So when it just becomes, here's lots of different things in the world. What's better than another? I think we are incredibly inc- uncomfortable now, making those value choices. And what I'm thinking about instead is, culture is an ecosystem in which there is there are things that are highly conventional. There's kitsch. There's things that are highly innovative on the art side. And we are in, uh, those things are in dialogue with each other. And what's really important is not necessarily for critics to go out there and say, this is better than another thing, but to promote things that are innovative so that all those ideas trickle down and that they change kitsch. Because kitsch changes, it adapts over time, mass culture adapts over time to the innovations that people make uh, in the artistic side. And so what is important is that we have some sort of critical function to at least promote and support. And reward the people who are making those innovations. Because at the moment, if it's just money and it's just popularity, there's no mechanism whatsoever to support them.
0: Well, that's why we have this show, David. Keen on to reward smart authors like you with important new books. Status and culture, how our desires for social rank creates taste, identity, art, fashion, and constant change. Very, very pro- provocative argument coming from Japan from the future from tomorrow congratulations David on that new book it's out next week but I'm sure you can order it now and that'd be good to order now because then David will go up in the rankings and he will have status amongst authors David what else are you reading in addition to uh, to, to go with your new book status and culture what other books would you suggest
1: yeah, too, if you're interested in the state of culture at the moment uh, or cultural history, uh, the 90s, the new book by Chuck Colsterman. Yeah, I read that. Uh, pop culture you writer, thought it was good? I, I really enjoyed it. You know, look, I lived through the 90s. I think about the 90s a lot. I think he had new perspectives on it, but it also yeah. gave me a lot of new perspectives on the culture He now was good because- on
0: culture. In fact, uh, one of the reviews I read of your book suggested that there's a, a Klosterman-esque quality to um to to your work which I, I took as a compliment yeah i thought some of the book was really good and some of it was a bit it was very very good on um films um mm. and on music he was less good on politics but that was just my opinion
1: but I, I think we are living in the shadow of the 20th century. A lot of our problem with our culture now is not necessarily that there's anything wrong with it. It's simply that we're judging it by the standards of the 80s and 90s, where we had these really crisp decades and could think of things in this these very, very linear ways. So I, that was, I think, a, a, a fun read, but also um, you know profound in that sense. The other one I would recommend is Kyle Chaka's The Longing for Less, which is a book about kind of the minimalism of our our time the search for minimalism and it's quite interesting because that moment may be changing we may be actually kind of moving out of minimalism now to this tackiness Uh, so you know elite aesthetics in the moment are moving toward these new forms of tackiness so um but i think he may have captured kind of that you know 2010s focus on minimalism as we move towards maybe 2020s maximalism again Uh, you know these things are always ebbs, ebbs and flows and it's good to bookmark them so